Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for October 14th, 2010. I'm going to go around the table and introduce the guys on the show. We have Mr. Jeff Simpson, author of the fabulous Simpson on Vegas column, available on Two Way Hard 3. Welcome, Jeff. Greetings, guys. Mr. Charles S. Monster Esquire from VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Not very much. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hey there. My name's Hunter Hilligus, and I'm at RateVegas.com. We're going to start off – there's a lot of interesting news, but we're going to start off with a couple of quick announcements to uh, get them out of the way. The Vegas podcast of Palooza is October 30th. That is two weeks from this coming Saturday uh, at the Flamingo on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, you can come see us. You can come listen to the fabulous gentleman uh, doing the strip. And the ever-charming um, Tim and Michelle from 500 by Midnight. So you can come out. You can hang out. You can uh, – we're going to have a little reception-type doohickey afterwards. You can come come to that. It's going to be fun. If you do come to the event, we ask a couple of quick things. Uh, we ask that you either print out a ticket that you can get at the website, vegaspodcastapalooza.com, or alternatively, if you have a smartphone, you can visit the website on said smartphone – Assuming you have signal <coughs> AT&T. Um, and then you can show it to the um, – I guess there will be a big burly guy that will be turning down all the poor homeless children that wanted to come that didn't couldn't print out the uh, ticket. <laughs> so you show it to someone, I guess, and that will get you in. The other thing that we're hoping is that if you go to the website, you'll see there's a link – for folks to RSVP, and the reason we're doing that is just so that the kind people at Harris, who I think are going to put out some like appetizers and hors d'oeuvres and stuff, can kind of get an idea of uh, how many people to expect for seating and that kind of thing. It's just a planning a planning thing, so it doesn't you're not committed, um, and we won't turn you away if you don't do that. But it's a it helps us out. So if you can, if you if you know you're going to go, or even if you're a maybe, there's a you can you can indicate your status as maybe. Um, you could go there. And um, and let us know. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. And um, we definitely hope to see you there. So it's October 30th at the Flamingo in the afternoon. All of the details are available at VegasPodcastapalooza.com. Uh, or um, if you visit you know, many of these uh, sort of associated websites, you'll find links and uh, people talking about it. Actually, Dave, you wrote um, your Greenfelt Journal column in Vegas 7 Magazine uh, this week about the show. So, you know, thanks for helping uh, promote. That's uh, very cool. Cool. And, um, yeah, we just hope everybody comes out. So two other quick announcements before we get into the details. Um, I'm, I've mentioned this before, but I'm uh, – giving away an iPad and I'm not going to explain the whole, the whole thing, but there's a link in the right sidebar uh, on two way hard through that explains how it works. And there's not that much time left uh, and it doesn't cost anything to enter. So if you're interested in winning an iPad, you probably have a pretty good chance. We've got a bunch of submissions, but compared to some of the mega contests you see out there in the world, I think your odds are still significantly better. Um, and I'm going to be announcing the winner at the podcast of Palooza show, but you don't have to be present to win. So go check that out if you have any interest in that. And then lastly, um, the nomination for the, the nominations for the trippies are open at VegasTripping.com. Um, you can nominate 
all sorts of stuff, uh, things from hotels to uh, to things in the digital domain. Um, there are categories for podcast and website, and there's a new app category. So, you know, a lot of the listeners of the show probably have already participated in that nominating process. But, um, Chuck, if they want to go nominate somebody, where do they go? You can just go to VegasTripping.com and uh, just look at the homepage there. There's that little thing that kind of rotates and... I think the second one, the second little window there, you'll see a, a big bloody fingerprint. Click on that bloody fingerprint, and that'll send you where you need to go. All right, cool. So get all CSI and smudge the bloody fingerprint, and you're yeah. in there. And when do the nominations end? I believe they end the day the plaza closes, which is November 11th. Okay, that's excellent timing. <laughs> and, uh, and then after that, there'll be uh, the nominations will be tallied, and there will be the, the, the normal voting process will be open. And uh, all those details will be available on VegasTripping.com as that process progresses. Yes. All right. Great. Um, let's get into it. There's actually a bunch of stuff um, since we, you know, uh, in our, I would say our schedule is, I would say, be charitable and say infrequent. Um, <laughs> it, uh, there's a lot of good stuff, but actually um, the, the main things that I picked for today all happened in the last uh, not, too, uh, not too distant past. So um, let's see. Let's start with the M Resort. Uh, the M Resort opened, uh, what, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something like that, close to that. <laughs> and correct. Yeah, and it's so it's located out um, at the 15 in St. Rose Parkway. If you're coming in from California, it's pretty hard to miss. It's pretty much the first thing that you see once you get into the valley proper. Um, and uh, it was uh, built by Anthony Marnell third, I believe. Um, and... Uh, you know, his family has a long history in Las Vegas. His father's very famous construction company that not only built some major resorts for other operators, but also built and operated the Rio, which they later sold to Harris. He grew up in the gaming business, um, went off to work for a couple other companies, worked in software for a while, but came back to build the and open the and operate the M Resort, which uh, you know, as is the story with many of these openings in the last couple of years. Um, it really got dealt a pretty crappy hand when it came to the economy. And um, I think, you know, while different people may have sort of different take on the quality of the property, I think generally people consider it to be a nice place. Um, it, it's, you know, if, if you're a Las Vegas Strip tourist, it's probably not the easiest place to get to. So there's a little bit of a challenge there. But for the locals that live in that area, and that's, you know, sort of, butts into part of the problem, which is a lot of the houses that were expected to be uh, sort of in their in their nearby radius never got built. Um, so the property has had some difficulties. The bank that held most of the debt, of course, had its own set of difficulties. And at this point, uh, it seems like it's just trying to get liquidate some of its positions and some of these some of these uh, some of these loans it has, including the M, and it. Uh, it basically traded um, hundreds of millions of dollars of its debt down for, I think, $230.5 million to Penn National Gaming, um, our returning champion, who have been uh, <laughs> trying to buy something in Las Vegas for the last uh, – I don't know. We've been talking about it forever, it seems. These guys um, have been in the news for invest at least investigating everything from the Bellagio to the Fontainebleau. Um, so – 
you know, this is an interesting story. There was obviously a lot of media attention as the deal unfolded. There was an, I thought, an interesting story in The Sun pretty much the next day where uh, Marnell basically said, I mean, if I could sum, sum his message up, was like, yeah, you know, I hope I get to work here still. Um, <laughs> which, I, you know. Good luck I, with that. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of my take on that. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine them finding a place. So I guess, Jeff, let me start with you. First off, did I did I sum that up in a reasonable way? Did I miss anything significant? No, that, that's exactly right. I think certainly uh, in Liz Benson's interview with Marnell, he, uh, he seemed, you know, sort of wistful. I think, you know, he was a victim of economic circumstance. I think in, uh, you know, if that property had opened in 2005 or 2006, even without the, the uh, development of the surrounding um, um, real estate, the homes, um, it probably would have done okay. It's just that the, you, the, the double whammy of the lack of rooftops plus the uh, horrible Las Vegas economy did them in. And, uh, you know, in the uh, next uh, column on uh, Two Way Hard 3 that comes out, I, I uh, briefly mention um, when I interviewed Tony Marnell when the property opened, I wrote a uh, um, Q&A for a trade publication, Gaming Industry Observer. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, what metric, what, what will tell you that you've succeeded um, a year after you've opened? And he, he was, you know, I sort of was shocked. He said, if I'm still in business, you know, and I, I've never had a casino operator tell me that before. I mean, usually, you know, they're, most of them are like incredibly overconfident. Um, I remember um, Jack Summer when he opened the Aladdin telling me that, uh, um, the neighboring casinos, Paris and Bellagio, they were going to end up being dorms for, for Aladdin. Um, you know, uh, not exactly a spot on prediction. And, uh, and, and so Marnell knew at the time that he was, you know, opening into a hurricane and he was right. I mean, he did his level best. I mean, he threw a lot of money into opening marketing. Um, he really did a nice job with his food and beverage um, operations. I think he got buzz going, but it, you know, there, it was just too much to overcome at the wrong time. Um, now, Penn buys at a good price, and I think that you know, in the long run, it's a it's a great property, and you know, it's not the kind of a place. I mean, I think that anyone who buys on the periphery of the valley, whether it's there, whether it's Red Rock, the Sun Coast, Aliante Station, it's tough to pin your hopes on getting Las Vegas tourists to think of those properties as being um, Las Vegas. Um, They're too far removed from the center of the valley. Taxi rides are way too expensive to the properties. Um, I just don't see it. But as a nice locals property and, you know, someone that they can, you know, and and as a place that they can convince a few out-of-market people to think of as Las Vegas, you know, it'll be great. But I don't see it as the um, ultimate um, expression of what they want in the city. Um, they're probably hoping for another, you know, attractively priced property on the strip. Um, as if the downturn continues for another year or two, they're going to get more opportunities on the strip, and maybe they'll eventually, uh, you know, strike. It's. I, I agree with you, Jeff. As far as this 
places being too far away for the average tourist to really consider them. But let's be fair. I drove around the valley last week to take pictures, and I went to Aliante Station, and I went to the Sun Coast, and I went to Red Rock. At, M Resort is a lot closer to Strip than any of those places. <laughs> it is, yeah. It definitely is, but it's still – Distant. I mean, anyone right. who's driven from Mandalay Bay to South Point knows that that mm-hmm. property is a lot farther than driving from Mandalay to, you know, um, the Sahara. Right. And so, you know, from one end of the, the you know, historic strip to the other. Um, and South Point to M Resort is a pretty decent haul it is. as well. So I'm not, I'm not uh, yeah, definitely. It is a little closer, and certainly it's close, closer to the airport, which is on the south end of the Strip, just off the south end of the Strip. But, you know, I, I you know, you pretty much are committing to going yeah, right, there and right. there only if that's your visit. So, so, Chuck, you've actually stayed at M Resort, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, and so I've been there a few times. I, I got to go to the party when they opened, and I've been back a couple times to check it out, but I've never stayed there. Um, so as someone that's been a guest, why don't can you talk a little bit about what you liked or didn't like about it? And as far as when it comes to Penn National, you know, is there anything about the place that you think um, they would be either – they're either very likely to screw with – because maybe it's expensive or just hard to understand, or that um, they would screw with at their own peril, i.e., you know, some awesome feature of the resort that if they were removed, it would just lose its uh, identity or its appeal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was taken by M uh, staying there. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the place from the service to the the dining options to. Uh, the decor, the architecture, the, the quality of the folks who work in there, uh, the ease of getting around this very intimate, exquisite, gorgeous property uh, that, that wasn't overly pretentious. It, it didn't – it was luxurious, but it, but it, it kind of keeps a, a, a work-a-day sort of attitude to it as well. Like a normal Joe Schmo like me, I don't feel out of place there. Uh, you know, I, I found the place to be fabulous. I, I, I really, really enjoyed my stay, and I liked the property so much that, you know, hiking back and forth to the strip, which I would like during the day, I'd go up there to go hit some of the things that I wanted to see, you know, and then driving back, it, it wasn't so bad. You know, I, I didn't really mind it, and I, and I enjoyed just the drive, just driving, zoning out on the freeway for five minutes or so. It was, you know, it was kind of relaxing in a different way. So uh, I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed M. Now, what concerns me here is uh, how uh, Penn National is going to look at the numbers, look at the corners, and look and see where they can uh, cut costs and increase uh, funding, you know, increase profits. And you know, obviously, I think food and beverage—they're—they're they're gonna probably try and slash the prices on those and slash the the uh, the quality as well uh, to get more people to get into the restaurants to eat. So they're doing more covers. Uh, that that to me would be a little bit of a sacrifice. Uh, and hopefully, they don't mess with the service or the the quality of other things. But uh, if I had a suggestion for them, something to do is. Uh, make make the get some get some playable slot machines in there. Make the place a gamble. 
You know, tell people this is a place where you could really play. You want to come here? You want to gamble? You want to play? You know, you might win. You might not win. But, uh, you know, my experience is just hitting the machines and whatnot. It was was a little kind of tight. So that's what I would change if I were them. So, uh, Dave, I have a question for you. Um, You know, Penn is a company that has casinos all over the United States. But they're new to a lot of Las Vegas tourists. Mm-hmm. And people that are interested in Las Vegas, what kind of reputation does the company have? What are they known for? Anything in particular? How do they run their properties? What kind of properties do they run? They're known for growing through acquisition, as opposed to so much building. You know, they bought the Hollywood casinos a little while ago, which is where they got a big chunk of it, and uh, that's pretty much how I think most people know them. I don't think they really have a very distinctive corporate culture right now, except that they want to be a bigger, you know, a more recognized casino company. Uh, kind of a couple of interesting things about M, though, that I want to share, and some of it builds on what Chuck was talking about. It's very interesting. Since the property opened, the Boulder Strip numbers and the Nevada Gaming uh, Revenue Reports have really been skewed. And if I can just fire some numbers at you, in 2008, which was the last full year, I believe, that the property wasn't open. Correct. Let's see. And where am I? Am I in 2008? Yeah. The average table hold... The average table win percentage for the Boulder Strip for that year was about 11.5%. The past, the last 12 months, actually from uh, May 2009 through April 2010, the average win percentage was about 8.3%. So it fell by more than 2%. I mean, more than. Four, uh, more than 3% there. So really, they've taken on a lot of action at the, at the tables that other casinos in the, in the market haven't, and I think that's really skewed them. And if you look at the Boulder Strip numbers for a lot of months, it'll be totally out of whack. You know, for example, in um, okay, so April 2010, for example, the winning percentage of blackjack from the, from the year before was down by 60%. Craps was up by 826% because their whole percentage went way up because somebody got unlucky. And, you know, they just got hammered at roulette. That's usually around 17%. It was down to under 8%. And they, like, barely made money. So, really, the they're attracting so much play at the tables that they're skewing the results for everybody. And I think that might have worked against them. Um, is it odd that... M Resort is counted with the Boulder Strip properties? No, and another there's another really interesting thing about it. They've had the benefit of getting some convention groups in because their address is in Henderson and not Las Vegas. So some companies who have said, you know, ah, their shareholders right. might say, well, we're not mm-hmm. going to send you to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So they've actually benefited a little, a little bit from their location, I think. So uh-huh. I think it kind of makes sense that they're not on the Strip because they are in Henderson and not right. in I guess the strip casinos aren't in the city of Vegas either, but you know, in paradise. Right. Right. Now a couple, a couple things there, the control board, it does include all of Henderson in the Boulder strip market. So it's sort of a, it's a weird market because when it was created, it was Boulder strip, um, pretty much alone. But then, um, the Lake Las Vegas properties opened the reserve. Now the Fiesta Henderson opened, um, green Valley ranch. And now, uh, M Resort opened, which really made it into sort of a T, running from Boulder Station 
um, down to uh, what used to be Lake Mead and is now Lake Mead and St. Rose Parkway, um, plus Green Valley Ranch, which is sort of between those. And, uh, you know, the one, so it is an odd shaped market and one that the gaming control board I've long argued should split the historic Boulder Highway from Henderson proper. Um, they give North Las Vegas its own city designation. They should do the same for Henderson. They have enough properties in the city now to do it. There, the control board tries to make it so that individual operators can't extrapolate their competitors' results right. by removing their own. Right. But there's enough different operators that they could easily do that now. Um, secondly, when um, what Dave was talking about the change from 2008 to 2009. Um, most of that market is relatively um, small type um, operations that don't get really big players that skew results. Um, and I would be hesitant to say that it was play at M that was the big change. I think the economic da- the the overwhelming economic downturn and a lot of players are like taking cash off the tables earlier. A lot of operators say, plus Green Valley Ranch, at least from what folks in the business tell me, um, even though it's had pretty poor performance over the last couple of years after being, you know, a superstar um, during its first, you know, six years of operation, um, Green Valley Ranch remains the big money player in that market, probably with M Resort um, a decent second. But um, and along with you know Sunset Station, which is also a pretty good property, then you have Boulder Station, Samstown Cannery, and you know all the others. But um, Green Valley Ranch remains sort of the, you know, it's not quite like Win and Encore are on the Strip, but it definitely gets the biggest, um, the biggest players um, uh, in their uh, on uh, on their tables. Um, so, you know, it could have been just lucky or unlucky, depending upon what the game was, performers at Green Valley Ranch as much as it was the new, um, the addition of M Resort. Well, I'm so, going oh, yeah. to just Go ahead. throw in a couple more cents there for that. I don't want to tip any of my sources there, but I know for a fact that some of the months where they've had some real irregularities, it has been because of what's going on down there, because they have been trying to get some high action play, and a couple months have backfired on them. So people played pretty lucky at, at the M during a few of those months. Yeah, at least a few that I can – I know that for a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of it, a lot of it may be Green Valley. But it's really interesting because for Boulder Strip, that decline in hold percentage is way more than is the rest of the state. The rest of the state went down from about 14 or so to under 12. And, and uh, Boulder's dropped a lot more than that. And that market is small enough so that a significant significant wins and losses can have a big effect. I guess – I. I I presume you guys would all remember when uh, Timmy Poster and Tom Breitling owned the Golden Nugget and they had the guy come in and take him for nine million bucks at the dice table. You know, imagine the hit. I mean, that was a, a substantial hit for downtown. Just to, you know, just in terms of you know, Golden Nugget is the huge uh, player downtown, and when one casino loses that much to one player um, at a certain table game, the entire market's performance gets skewed. Boulder Highway, or I'm sorry, the Boulder Strip um, gaming market is a bigger market 
um, pretty significantly than downtown. So um, big a big loss. And and I I haven't talked to anyone who's you know told me anything like that. So um, that's that is significant, and that could certainly account for M Resorts uh, troubles. Do do we think that it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that Marnell is out? I don't know, if only because they might want to develop something else, and he'd be a really good guy to have to help with their development nationally. I mean, you know, if you want to build a casino anywhere, uh-huh. I, I think he'd be pretty good. So maybe for that reason, maybe not, but I don't think they need him to run the property. You know, he owns a couple places in uh, in Laughlin, the Edgewater and the Colorado Bell, and a little joint in Pahrump. Um I'm not sure that he... Um, it would really surprise me. I guess, you know, it would be sort of a magnanimous gesture. Um, it would allow him to continue whatever connections he has to players who are customers. Uh, but, you know, based on the things that Penn has said, um, I would be surprised. Um, I would like to say about Penn National Gaming, um, you know, one of the things that one of their executives, not their CEO, but Tim Wilmot, I believe, is a, a top Harris executive that they hired to be. I think he's their COO, but um, I'm not positive about that. Um, but he was he had a similar position at Harris before he left Las Vegas. And uh, I know that there was no love loss for Wilmot when he left Harris. I think uh, a lot of folks in the executive suites um, up in uh the top floors of Caesar's Palace uh, were sort of happy when he uh, hit the road. So, um, I, you know, that's neither here nor there in terms of how he runs that business. But I think he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way here in town. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that even if he doesn't find a place with pen, that he's just going to kind of vanish into thin air. I mean, he seems like a very ambitious and talented guy. And, um, you know, you keep – you've as the years go on, you hear all kinds of rumors, especially as some of these um, bigger companies that swallowed up so many properties um, you know, were hurting and needed to find money. The persistent rumors of um, Harris maybe selling the Rio back to the Marnells. Um, you hear that every once in a while. Who knows if there's any basis of fact in that at all. Um, but uh, I could easily imagine him being involved in some kind of operation. It's funny, Jeff, you mentioned Tom Breitling and Tim Poster. Now, Breitling and Poster went to win after um, that Golden Nugget deal went down, and, and Poster is still there, but we just found out uh, this week that Tom Breitling has actually left win and is now uh, doing who knows what. But um, it's interesting to see where some of these guys end up after they uh, – <clears throat> after their companies get absorbed or bought or whatever the circumstances may be. Hmm. So we'll see what happens with Tom Breitling. I don't know. That was that was sort of news to me that he had secretly uh, slipped off into the horizon. But um, <laughs> you know, Breitling is a great guy, but his his expertise is more on the you know public relations, marketing side. Poster is the casino indus- industry gambling kind of guy. Uh, you know, tied in with the Fertitta family, and you know he's. He's sort of the, you know, he understands the casino business. I think Wynn really values that. I don't know, um, you know, and I don't know if there was a falling out between those two or between um, 
uh, Tom and, and Steve Wynn. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if he has anything to say about it. My experience is that most of the folks who part ways with Steve Wynn are smart enough not to talk too much about it because he carries so much weight in the business. But, um, you know, that'll be interesting to find out. And, uh, you know, Wynn has slowed down his development schedule, obviously, here in Las Vegas. And it's, it'll be interesting to see how long Poster is willing to be a, you know, an executive on that team. He may, you know, maybe, um, he, ha- you know, others have, grown tired of waiting in the pecking order um you know bobby baldwin obviously uh, got the opportunity to run the former mirage resorts resorts companies when kirk kerkorian bought mirage resorts um and uh um don marandino was hired um to be the you know the president of win um before the property opened and left when it became clear to him that Steve Wynn and Mark Shore were going to be, you know, calling more shots than he did from executive offices that were senior to him. Um, and he went over to Harris where he remains now in Atlantic city. So, um, you know, it's a, you know, Wynn really values long-term loyalty and he likes to build a staff of ambitious, talented executives. Some people are willing to be patient, not all are. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what what eventually happens with Timmy as well. You know, I think the thing about Tim and Tom is you go to win, and it's not uncommon to see Tim Poster walking around the casino floor, and he literally looks like the guy was like born to do that job. Um, Absolutely. He, he loves, he oh, loves the business. He loves it, and you can just tell he just oozes out of every bone in his body. Um, for for Breitling, you know, he's uh, got a lot of experience with the internet stuff, with the company that they had together before the Nugget. But I, the thing that's, I think, interesting about those two and with other people in their situation is that they're executives in this company, but they have so much money, they could – do nothing, and you know it would, that I think that has an impact on your decision making process when it comes to how patient you're going to be about moving up a corporate ladder when you have tons of basically fu money, and it doesn't matter if you work at all. And so there's got to be some interesting project on the other side of the rainbow, or else there's just no reason to be there. Sure, that makes sense. All right, let's talk about. Um, well, we're going to tie two topics together here. First, we're going to talk about some August numbers, and then we're going to talk about MGM Resorts International, everyone's favorite uh, Las Vegas gaming company. Um, but first, let's talk about the gaming numbers. We had some. We had a report a couple days ago, maybe a week ago, that August gaming wins surged twenty one percent on the Strip. Um, Dave, I know you are a keeper of the numbers. What is obviously this sounds like good news. Um, was this unexpected? What, what was your take when you got the official um, tally? Good news, but not totally awesome for a couple reasons. Probably the most worrying. Okay, first of all, the good news is that gaming win definitely went up. Total revenue went up to about nine hundred and forty-four million from about eight hundred and forty-seven million, which seems pretty good. Problem is that slot revenue only went up a little bit. And that increase was entirely because slot hold percentage went up. So basically the machines got a little bit tighter. People moved to tighter machines. The handle actually went down by about $200 million or so. So people actually gambled about $200 million less in strip slot machines this August as opposed to last August, which is troubling to me because that's a sign to me of the broader kind of mass market demand. Um, The other thing is that 
it wasn't really a great month for table hold, but they still did well. The Bach hold was a little bit over 8%, and it should be somewhere around 10% or even higher. So it's kind of good that because the people just gambled so much, they still did well. The, the handle, the amount that people played in Baccarat almost doubled. It went from about a billion dollars to $1.9 billion. So it's not surprising that they made money. So that's pretty good. you know. So I think it's good that they're getting in this high-end play. The negative I see is they're still having trouble getting traction, getting people to come back and spend money the way they were. Okay. And, and you know, this is something that I you know mention every month when when we have this you know the the boost that we've had for most of 2010 in baccarat performance is that that only benefits like six or seven casinos primarily win encore bellagio aria to a lesser extent, Venetian and Palazzo, and to an even lesser extent, Caesar's Palace. Um, MGM Grand gets some business too sometimes. But, you know, those the three operators who are also in Macau, um, MGM, Wynn, and Adelson, um, you know, they benefit from this Baccarat boom. But the mass market casinos, which is every other one, you know, out of 40-plus big casinos on the Strip – you know, that's only six, seven, or eight casinos that, that dip their toes into that Baccarat uh, bonanza. Everybody else is not getting, uh, you know, almost any of it. So, you know, when when slots are, are, are slow or when they have to tighten up hold, and that drives customers away. So that's sure. not a long-term path like, to success. almost like cheating. I mean, I don't, well, I don't mean that in, a, I don't mean that in a gaming. gaming. Right, exactly. Short-term gain, long-term pain. Because right. people know, people know, they sense um, when, you know, they're not getting as much, um, you know, they're not getting as long a play. And, uh, you know, they'll vote with their feet. They'll go to some other place that gives them better play. Um, and so, you know, the, uh, for every other casino, other than the ones that participate substantially in Baccarat, um, the trends are not good. Um, you know, it's it's it, it, flat is better than down. So it's hard to say this year has been, you know, as bad as 2009 or 2008. It clearly has not because the downward trend is over. But for anybody who's saying that this means, you know, that because of Baccarat performance that happy days are here again, they are clearly mistaken. Well, I mean, I, I didn't realize, and I, I admit that I didn't uh, pay the closest attention to um, how some of these numbers were formulated, but I didn't realize that they uh, were maybe a result of uh, you know tightening up those um, slot machines a little bit. And then that the um, – like you said, Dave, sort of the broader number of the really – the amount of money that people are putting in, which I think is a much better indication, is, um, is going down, which – I mean – Obviously, that means people were playing less, right? I mean, <laughs> it's hard. It's also, yeah, go ahead. Also, they're also moving more to higher hold machines. You know, they're the big winners as for August, as far as a whole, as far as the uh, winning, you know, winning goes. The revenue goes were penny machines, um, dollar machines, and also mega bucks. And pennies and mega bucks both have pretty high holds. So it's interesting. People are choosing to play these games. You know, a lot of times because pennies, they can have more gambling options for less. You know, for 
25, 50 cents, you have all the different lines. And Megabucks, obviously, you have that kind of lottery thrill. But it's really interesting how that's happening. People are, it seems like people are choosing not to play the lower hold games. They're actually moving into these high hold games. Hmm. And for people who play, particularly like the, you know, the recent years, the, the penny and, and, and nickel, huge number of bet, multi-line, you know, where you can play 50 lines or 25 lines. Um, and, you know, what you see is people driving their own hold percentage or their own payout percentage down because they're thinking, okay, I used to play five nickels or five pennies per line and play all the lines. When you start playing fewer lines, fewer, fewer bets per line, that drives the hold down because the maximum hold is always on maximum, maximum coin, maximum lines bet. And so people are, you know, economizing, saying, well, I want to play longer, but they're in effect, you know, they're driving their hold down. Um, and, you know, it may take, you know, people may think, okay, I did get to play longer that way, but, you know, they're not getting any jackpots and the big, you know, the big, you know, even when they do line things up on, on a pay line, you know, they're not getting nearly as much as they used to when they were paying, playing, uh, you know, max coins bet. Interesting. Well, it's always you know tracking the uh, the progression of these figures as we uh, hope for signs of recovery. It's very always interesting to see when uh, some of these numbers come out. I want to tie this into a um, a pre-release uh, earnings announcement from MGM Resorts International, um, the fifty uh, percent. Owner of the fabulous City Center, the number one hotel casino complex on the Las Vegas Strip. Um, in <laughs> Why are you laughing? I don't understand. Uh, anyway, um, the reason uh, I'm bringing up uh, bringing this up is because you know they released some information about their figures. They're uh, about to um, offer some more equities into the market to try and raise some money to pay down some of their debt. And um, they put out some of these numbers. And Dave, actually, you and I, there's some, a lot of interesting stuff in here to talk about. But I want to talk about one thing first because it ties into the August numbers, which is something you and I talked about on Twitter, Twitter very briefly. MGM reports that in, that in this quarter they're pre-announcing, which is this last quarter, that they took a significant hit in casino revenue. And it sounds like um, – that uh, MGM's Baccarat value was down was down volume was down six percent, and um, you know they have Bellagio, MGM Grand, uh, Aria, and to a lesser extent the Mirage, which I believe are all fairly significant when it comes to um, contributing to Baccarat volume on the Las Vegas Strip. So I'm going to force you to repeat yourself. Yeah, how, how do these things enough. square? How do these numbers square with um, one says good, one says bad? It's really weird. You know, either things went really bad in September and we just haven't seen it yet and they got, you know, everybody suffered or they lost a lot of business somewhere because if I was reading that right, they said their volume was down, which to me is the same as handle. Mm -hmm. And no matter how lucky people get, that should be way up. I mean, that is a handle in August was up by about 87% for the entire strip. So, you know, it nearly doubled. And it's hard for me to believe that with Aria open and them, you know, getting so many high end players in there that that wouldn't go up significantly for the whole quarter. So something, you know, if if the handle's down, 
you know, that's definitely not good. That means they're losing players. Um, people from Win or LVS are coming over there and grabbing their players out of out of there. You know, um, and or if, or the new or the new business is all going to Win and to a lesser extent yeah. Sands. So that is a good thing for um, Win Resorts. If bad for MGM. So conspiracy yeah. theory, Aria is you know <laughs> sucking so much ass that people are finding out about it and they don't want to play there at MGM anymore. I you know I don't think so. I think they're still doing some pretty robust yeah. numbers in there from, from I what I hear. Yes, but, so do I. You know it it it's Baccarat's really tough. You know, and this is one of the reasons why I did that micro study a while back. You know, you can really get burned, and I think a lot of the longtime casino people know this. You know. Whether Wall Street has any comfort for this, we'll see. You know, certainly it wouldn't be the first time that Wall Street is kind of panicked when the Baccarat volatility, volatility is skewed quarterly numbers. So we'll see what happens. You know, um, it's, it's oh, yeah. since since I've been in town, I've seen a, a few executives just you know wring their hands about Baccarat and get out of the business. Um, Gary Lubman did that at the Rio. Um, the Rio used to be a relatively big player. Um, you know, there weren't as many players at the top back then, but the Rio, um, you know, gave up the business, um, when Loveman couldn't stomach the volatility that Dave, um, wrote about in his Atlantic City study. Um, I think that, um, here in this market, you know, MGM Resorts, when they are, when then MGM Mirage, but after they acquired Mirage, they owned Almost all the Baccarat business um, in the city, Caesars and Venetian had a little, but they had about 75% of the city's Baccarat market. And, uh, you know, when Wynn opened, within a year, he had over, you know, half the market. So there's something about those Baccarat, you know, first of all, Wynn um, knows the gaming business and knows casinos and, and can stomach the volatility of the results. Um, you know, they've had a couple tough quarters where they didn't win as much as you would expect at, at Baccarat, but win, you know, tr- you know, he, he understands you got to keep players in there, get them playing longer and more. And you do that by having a nice property. Um, you know, Aria, um, just has not had the impact. Um, they, you know, it, it may have cannibalized Bellagio and MGM grand business. It may be that they're, um, not able to attract um, Macau-based or Macau-oriented players to Las Vegas as well as Wynn and Sands have done. But um, if that trend continues, it is not a good thing for very, very expensive casinos at Bellagio and Aria. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it'll be interesting to see when we get to see the aggregate September numbers to try and unravel. I mean, right now we only have part of the puzzle, right? But it'll be interesting to see when we get some more of this data to figure out kind of what happened here because there does seem to be, they, they don't seem to jive exactly. At least there there seems to be part of the story that's missing. Um, talking about some of the other things that were in there in their pre-release earnings announcement. And probably the other real big story here was that um, the Borgata property in Atlantic City, which they co-own with Boyd Gaming, um, it turns out that they've actually received an offer for their 50% share of Borgata. 
Um, since uh, I think about February or so when the um, New Jersey Casino Control Commission uh, and MGM came to an agreement about how they're going to handle the situation um, regarding Pansy Ho, they basically put their assets there into sort of a trust and um, – to give themselves some separation operationally from that, I guess, well, they don't really operate Borgata, but um, to give themselves some extra separation in legal terms so that until the uh, until their ownership can be reduced, uh, they're not uh, directly involved. Um, so, uh, you know, some a couple interesting things. Um, first off, who who is making this offer? The other thing is the amount of the offer because – they announced that the offer was low enough that they're going to have to write down the asset. It's lower than what they've been carrying the asset on their books for. So, uh, but the offer was good enough that and solid enough that they submitted it to Boyd, who has a right of first refusal, um, basically meaning that they can match it and uh, take over the entire entirety of the property if they want to. Um, so, Dave, I know you've wrote about this on your blog because there's, you know, some interesting speculation. Who is this mystery, uh, this mystery bidder? Um, you you put up a couple of possibilities. What do you think? I've got no idea. I, you know, I try to throw out a couple of a couple of things. You know, my favorite is uh, Donald Trump coming out wearing some kind of hood and mysterious disguise and ripping it off and saying it was me all along. You know, <laughs> which would be funny if you watched World Wrestling Federation back in the late '90s and remember the higher power storyline. <laughs> it's not not so funny, but you you need, the, you need the visual of Jim Murren like trapped in the ring ropes and Trump. You know. Taunting him. That makes I think I think Jim Murn has that nightmare pretty much every night. <laughs> yeah. um, Dave's blog post is, is 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 funny and I you know, I think that uh, on on the uh potential bidder for that half of Borgata, um I think that one you know, I and I have no idea who it would be either. I'm sure, you know, MGM you know, tried furiously to find someone who had come up with something. They need to extricate themselves there. And it's tough to be in that position of a forced sale in a crappy economy, in a market that, you know, not too many people are feeling, um, you know, that that strongly about. So, you know, it wasn't a good situation for MGM um, Resorts. I don't know who the bidder is. Um, I do know that every time I've talk to folks over at Boyd, um, you know, on, on background, they, you know, they clearly want to own the whole property. Um, and, you know, the write down in value, yeah, that affects, you know, what their value is as well of the, of the half that they own. And, you know, they obviously operate the whole property. Um, but it also means that they won't have to pay as much as maybe they thought they would, right. um, you know, to buy the whole thing. I'll be surprised if they don't buy it, um, and certainly MGM's offer from the other partner or from the other bidder. Um, you know, MGM is clearly portraying this as a substantial bona fide offer. I don't know if it is. I don't know who it is. I don't know how solid their ability to get the money. I presume for them to list it like that, it must be you know solid enough for them to base their valuation and everything on it. Um, so giving them the benefit of the doubt there, um, you know, you got to say that it's pretty likely that Boyd would buy. They have the ability to. Um, you know, but it's not a it's not a sure thing. I mean, Bill Boyd has always been a savvy buyer and trader, um, as evidenced by uh, his uh, 
ability to, uh, you know, get Harris to pay for the Westward Ho property and that crazy McDonald's transfer to get the Barbary Coast um, from them. So, you know, I, I, I would bet if I had to that Boyd ends up owning it, but um, it's not a sure thing. So it's going to be interesting to see. It seems like it would be really crazy for them not to take a serious crack at it. I mean, you know, it's it is a, a troubled market, but it's by far the best property in in the troubled market, and uh, it 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 seems like they've they've got to try to make it happen. And I'm sure you know, I'm sure that they're crunching those numbers. And if they don't do it, it's going to be really interesting to see what the rationale and, and reasoning was behind it. Almost the you know the only rationale would be that they you know that they think the price is wrong and that um, they want to marshal the resources or they're concerned about you know you know looming debt payments or whatever. But um, like I said, I think it's highly likely that they will buy it. In addition to this information about Borgata, um, you know there's some other numbers in this release, uh, specifically that if you don't count City Center, which of course is you know, in financial terms, like basically the equivalent of like going down in flames. Um, the other, all the other casinos that MGM owns, you know, all the profitable ones that they bought from Mandalay and from Mirage and that they developed themselves, um, those are actually down too, pretty significantly, 13%. So it's really not a very good story over there in MGM land. Uh, as far as uh, the money story goes, but they are trying to raise some some money to pay down their debt, which they have been chipping away at, which is obviously one of their problems. They have a pretty significant debt load. They're working to bring that down, um, which you know they have debt covenants that they have to meet. So I, I, it's not just because they're feeling like it's the right thing to do; they have you know obligations to uh, to live up to. But the other thing that was interesting about the story is that in addition to MGM selling the shares, there was a, a notice that Tracinda, the holding company for Kirker Corian, the uh, you know still uh, still the largest shareholder in MGM, if, if not if no longer the majority shareholder, um, is also selling a bunch of shares and bringing down his position. Um, I mean, that doesn't seem like it, the the releases were obviously timed and coordinated. Um, but that doesn't seem like that's good news for MGM. I mean, it, it's hard to spin that in a way that that uh, it sounds like it's good news. Am I misreading that, Hunter? Yeah, I am going to shovel a big pile of horse poop on this whole thing. Okay. Not but three or four weeks ago, Murren showed up in the media saying how October bookings are really strong. Convention bookings are up. Everything's going to look really good. He did this whole cheerleading thing, uh, which resulted in, in, in an article in the sun, I believe that got picked up everywhere. And right at that point, MGM shares, which have been slowly, slowly, you know, they've been left in the dust by everybody else in the sector. They were like nine bucks, nine fifty a share. It jumped up to like twelve or thirteen dollars, right? Total absolute pump and dump scam. That's what this whole thing is all about. It's straight up to Kirk Krikorian. Wow. Yeah, that was that interview. I think it was on CNBC. Um, they came to town and did a uh, um, video interview with Murren, and he was he was pretty darn positive about how things are going and how they'll be. Um, I think you're right, Hunter and 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 uh, Chuck. I think that you uh, you know are onto something there. I think that this it's not a good sign. Um, 
you know, I remember only three years ago, Kerkorian was announcing his intention to try and buy even more of the property, potentially uh, of the company, potentially even thinking about taking it private. Um, and, uh, you know, the shareholders in their infinite lack of wisdom, um, mm-hmm. you know, refused to give up their shares. And so he couldn't, you know, buy as many as he wanted. Um, you know, his uh, golden touch um, in the uh, automobile and lately the casino business has uh, turned to rust. And, um, you know, you got to feel bad. I mean, can't feel too bad for someone who's uh, still worth many, many, many billions. But, um, you know, Kerkorian has, uh, has not done well lately. It's not a good sign for him um, selling, you know, selling himself down to only a 30% stake when a few years ago he had, you know, a slight majority stake. Um, I think that the, the company is doing what Murren said. Now, in the long run, I think what Murren wants to do, which is to reduce debt, you know, they said that after their last couple big transactions when they bought Mirage, when they bought uh, Mandalay, they immediately went into debt repayment mode because they had levered up so much. And, you know, they are in a position to use some of these resources to delay some of their debt, push it back. Granted, the rates will go up a little bit. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, so I think that in the long term, their strategy has to be to pay down debt and do what they and Harris have the size to do, which is to keep strong arming their creditors. Um, you know, properties like M Resort or the Palms or, you know, to a lesser extent, probably the the Station Greenspun properties, you know, these one or two casino companies and operators, you know, a uh, uh, a investment bank, um, it will happily take over one of those properties and sell it if times are right. Nobody wants to be stuck op- owning Harrah's or MGM, or MGM Resorts portfolio of casinos. I mean, those things are just too big and too crazy, too unwieldy. So MGM and Harrah's have a lot of leverage to really, you know, put the screws to their creditors and make them defer and reduce um, you know, payments on their debt. So uh, I think that MGM Mirage is, is, is you know, even though the, the recent performance has been bad, it's not a good sign that um, Tracinda wants to reduce its stake, Kerkorian wants to reduce his stake. But in the long term, I think Murren's um, strategy to reduce debt will probably work. Um, you know, the big thing for that company is going to be um, – how quickly Las Vegas rebounds. I mean, that company, you know, a lot of companies always try and diversify their holdings. MGM Mirage and Stations are two companies, Station Casinos, two companies that said, the hell with diversification. We want to own huge chunks of the best market in the world. Well, you know, that scenario changed dramatically three years ago and now the folks that aren't diversified like MGM, like Station you know, they're left holding you know, a, a, a very porous bag and you know it, 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 it's not a sure thing that MGM gets out of the long term crisis but because of the size of the company they do have a lot more uh, power with their creditors than single and double property companies do well, that's definitely uh, 
Thanks for that. I mean, that's that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that you're right. I mean, I can't imagine um, you know one of their one of their creditors really wanting to try and take on something as insane as the uh, and as the, all the properties that they have to uh, they have to manage. Um, Too big to fail. Yes, indeed. <laughs> That's right. Indeed. I mean, you know, the the regulatory nightmare. I mean, you're talking Michigan, you know, extricating out of that, you know, New Jersey situation, Mississippi. I mean, you know, not to mention Las Vegas and Macau. I mean, it is a, it would be a nightmare. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I mean, you, you know, you, you saw Cosmopolitan uh, and Deutsche Bank people being licensed or going through the licensing process this last week up in Carson City. Um, but I, I doubt that, uh, you know, the the main folks holding the uh, the MGM debt want to make that uh, – want to get that tour going and visit every uh, state capital from here to uh, eternity. Um Let's see. Okay, I want to move on. Um, I'm going to talk about something that, Chuck, you posted on your site, which is something of an ongoing feature that you kind of do from time to time. I don't know if you do it on a specific interval, but I see it every once in a while, um, which is sort of analysis of room rates. And um, so the story I'm talking about, which is something you titled Pencil Myth-Busting the Booking Window, can you tell us a little bit about what you wrote? Sure. I, uh, I, I have been long fascinated by uh, hotel pricing. By how they decide to price things and how the pricing for a room for a date changes over time as it gets closer from from uh, the, the date you check to the date that you're checking to find. So let's say we check for October 1st every day. If we just check October 1st at one hotel, uh, you know, every day from here to – uh, next October 1st, we'll get some kind of trend. I imagine we'll be able to figure out some kind of trend of when the room rates go up or down uh, and how far out you should book from your uh, from the current date to maximize the lowest uh, hotel room rates. So uh, I've I, based on some other data that I, that I had cobbled together uh, at the end of September, uh, I checked the rates of uh, five or six places, and I went back and checked them again. So uh, threw them all into a database, fourteen days or so apart, and uh, discovered you know how some of these hotels uh, change the way their rates are as the dates come closer to uh, to booking. So what I what I seem to have found is that uh, uh, when when they when they set their rates, they tend to set them on the high end, and if they get them fine, if they don't, then they, they tend to slightly decrease them uh, as the date comes closer, or you know, markedly increase them uh, if if there is really is a lot of demand. But but it, but it doesn't seem that they do too much increasing. They're doing more slight decreasing as as the booking dates arise, as they arrive. Uh, uh, both MGM Mirage and Harris uh, do the opposite. They set their way in advance prices pretty low, and then let demand uh, work their work the rates up as the dates become closer. And and comparing some of the other properties, you can see when about how far out from the, from the from the search date to the booking date. Uh, 
that that uh, the, the the prices start to change, and it's usually about two or three weeks. So usually somewhere around that time, if you book at least three weeks before your uh, arrival, uh, you're probably going to get better rates. Uh, anytime kind of closer to that, you're you're subjecting yourself to more and more volatility in the rates. Uh, now this is this is I, I'm I'm thinking you know really to really understand this, it would require having an intern to to scrape these numbers and dump them into a database uh, that would spend a lot of time to, to do it, but. I think you know the next time we do, we're going to have three passes at some of these, and we'll be able to to, to really kind of track out uh, whether or not there is an actual booking window, uh, what companies use what types of algorithms, and uh, how to kind of maximize uh, your hotel dollar based on planning. Now, this is all kind of like ridiculous, pedantic, insane stuff, but uh, you know, I enjoy doing it. Now, the thing that should also be mentioned is that uh, with if you book through uh, Orbitz and use their price assurance thing, then you just set it and forget it, and they'll send you a refund if somebody else books that date for less than you. Uh, if you book through the hotel websites and phone numbers themselves, uh, particularly with any kind of comp offer, the fine print that's starting to show up, particularly in MGM properties, is that you cannot rebook your room. You cannot, if you say, I found a better rate, you're stuck with it. And See, that's pretty important. I mean, because that's yeah. honestly for a long time, that's advice that I've given to people who have asked, you know, when should I book? And the terms were typically lenient enough that it was almost entirely safe to say, book yeah. as soon as you can because you can lock in whatever the rate is. You don't have to worry about it going up. And if it right. goes down, you can always get them to change it. But you're saying that yeah. that's becoming less common. That is becoming less common, particularly at MGM properties. Well, any kind of deals or offers, you cannot change them. Uh, you can cancel them. Sometimes there's like a fee involved in canceling it. Uh, depends on how far out you do that, but uh, you really have to read. If you get any kind of comp offers, you have to read the fine print because it'll tell you everything you need to know, all the details and all that stuff. And factor in also here the resort fee <coughs> thing too. Uh, so we're we're fully not seeing you know the actual rates here on this study because right. right. you know all these other resorts like Arius are going to start charging a twenty dollar plus tax resort fee in December. Uh, you know, so all these things are going to keep going up and up and up, as room right. rates are too. I think that first of all, Chuck, um, great study, um, a fantastic read. Um, I think, you know, it's been something I've been interested in for a long time and have talked to operators, you know, uh, um, you know, maximizing yield on their hotel rooms is something that, um, you know, they do spend a lot of time. Um, they have, you know, um, accountants and, um, experts, hotel operations experts who, you know, really focus on that. And, you know, there are some variables, um, that go into it that are very, very tough for the the general public to uh, figure out. I think certainly looking at a LVCVA um, at the LVCVA convention schedule, finding um, big groups that are scheduled at certain properties. Um, if you know, if you see a you know seven thousand person group that's going to be at Aria on a certain weekend. Um, 
that may explain higher rates at that hotel as opposed to, you know, lesser, you know, far lesser rates at Venetian Palazzo, Palazzo. Um, other things that another variable that's really important is that they pay very close attention to what their competitors are doing. Now that doesn't mean they, they directly mimic what their competitors are doing, but there is a significant amount of sort of intelligence gathering. Um, each property pegs itself. And I've talked to operators, uh, Glenn Schaefer at Mandalay, um, Robert Earl, when he was in charge of uh, Planet Hollywood and each property sort of pegs itself into the pecking order and they have certain competitors that they want to see what they're doing um, and you know maybe adjust their price accordingly if they think that their competitors lowering rates to try and capture more business they may respond in kind if they see that their pre- their competitors have more pricing power um, and have you know reduced room availability higher prices um, they may want to um, follow that pattern as well so they're not giving any dollars away it is a very very complex business but I think what you've done is given people a greater understanding into maybe by on a company by company or property by property basis what has appeared to be the best way to get rack rates um, you know most people who you know are really into your side and Hunter's side. I, I got a question how many people are, are rack rate buyers. I'm sure there's some, but uh, I, I also think that a lot, a lot of people have the ability to get much better rates um, based on, you know, casino play or other industry knowledge, particularly on the, the kind of folks who are reading what you write, what Hunter writes. So it's a very, very complex and interesting subject. I think what you did is, a, you know, really, really good work. Um, but it will take, it will be a long time before we have the kind of visibility people need to make, you know, perfect decisions right. in the market because so much of that stuff is shrouded in secrecy. Yeah. Chuck, how often uh, do you plan to do this kind of research? Well, I actually – I have been planning I, – I, I try to do a, just a general kind of room trend study every season, uh-huh. you know, fall, summer, winter, etc. But uh, this, this specific one, I'm going to probably do it every two weeks. And I, and I, and I had uh, – I actually had some uh, – Things set up and built with a, a kayak API uh-huh. that was going to dump all of it was going to go and grab their data based on uh, star ratings right. as well, uh, parse it from the top five hotels just as a sampling, throw that into the data every day into a database every mm-hmm. day, and then do comp- com- computations on the fly. So I was planning on you know I'm actually like three quarters of the way done building this thing for like a year now that was going to automate uh, rate basically rate casting mm-hmm. uh, for Vegas hotels based on right. star ratings and, and, and other things like that. Another thing I'm also interested in is you know they say that uh, if you're booking uh, airlines that Tuesday is the best day to check for rates. <laughs> I want to find out if there's a good day. If that also holds true in the Vegas hotel industry, and huh. also what time of day? It's interesting. Like if you check the same thing like every hour, right? You know, and you do it for a week or two weeks or something. And this is just like insane amount of data to scrape. Right. You'll you'll get some kind of trend uh-huh. to see when they change rates, what the best time. You know, we're talking about nickel and dimes here, and it's kind of 
pedantic, but you know, it, it seems like it would be something that would be worthwhile to do. I think people would be interested in knowing. Yeah. Well, I haven't talked about this, but I'm actually building a uh, a rate checking mechanism kind of similar to what you're describing into Vegas Mate as well. So maybe we should compare notes one of these days and see if uh, we can. It would be great to compare some data and see uh, who's right and who's wrong, and maybe come up with something that's better for everybody. Because My I think. Notes. My notes will cost you $1.4 million. Oh, that's no problem. <laughs> that's no problem at all. Hey, could I, could I add one quick thing? Yes, uh, of you, course. You mentioned, uh, Ch- or you mentioned Chuck, the uh, incorporating star ratings into, uh, into your analysis. And I don't know if he, any of you guys read um, Steve Fries's, uh, um blog. A few, Never heard of him. Maybe it was a few weeks ago where, <laughs> where he uh, he mentioned that I think it was a relative or a friend booked at the Tropicana and then got oh yeah uh huh and yep. and they said okay the Tropicana is a four star property which was just insane in itself and then they said they were bu- bumping him and arranged for him to stay at yeah. another four star star property the Sahara right and I was thinking God have we moved to the Macau or worse star rating where well, I think four are like twenty stars. Right. And, yeah. I mean, because if if those properties are four stars, right. you know, yeah. there's got to be a ten star. So, well, there was all I mean, kinds. That story was funny because there were like all kinds of problems with that email. It was it was saying that it was they were equivalent in quality, that they were close to each other. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, it was just like okay, whoever wrote this has like never been to any of these places. Yeah, that, it was that was, funny. That certainly was not a uh, a positive for whatever that that. Um, lame company was, but yeah. um, just the in the the idea of some of the star ratings are just uh, just ridiculous. Yeah. All right, I know we're going long. I want to really quickly ask you guys one more thing before we move on, which is um, the Hoover Dam bypass, which is opening really soon. Do you guys? This is a question I got over Twitter, so I wanted to throw this in there. Do you guys think that'll have any impact, positive impact, regarding Arizona tourists coming to visit? Any thoughts? I think so. Yeah. I think I think so. I mean, I've long argued that Las Vegas needs um, to develop that east, that north-south uh, um, interstate. Now, this isn't an interstate, but it's another piece that could eventually be an interstate. It removes a bottleneck for uh, visitors visitors from the south to uh, to make it all the way up to Las Vegas. So I think it's a plus. I think it's you know a relatively small contributor in the short run, but as a piece of a potential future interstate, I think it would be a huge, um, could be a huge plus, you know, after 9-11 and then certainly in this current downturn, um, when the fly-in passengers go down, both because of the economy and because of reduced uh, airlift into the city, uh, you know, they, they try and tap their drive-in customer bases more um, they may spend less, but it's better than nothing. And certainly, those folks down south, um, you know, would be a nice additional group that our casinos can tap during uh, slower periods. Here's how you know that Jeff is not in airline PR because he used the words "flying passengers go down." So clearly, um, <laughs> he's not. Uh, been, he's never worked for an airline. No. <laughs> all I right. Don't really like that business at all. <laughs> Um, all right, let's let's close with our sure our sure bet segment. This is when we get to endorse something that we hope our listeners might be interested in. Um, so we'll just go around the table. Dave, are you still with us? I sure am. All right, Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Hit us. Yeah, hit um, us. 
I'm going to kind of do a little – I'm going to split my bet here and do two of them. First of all, uh, I had a really incredible interview with a wonderful lady down at the El Cortez, Liz Butler, who's a cocktail waitress. So if you go down to the El Cortez between 9 and 5 and sit in the slot area around the Kino, you will get like great drink service and – Pretty great attitude, too. You know, um, just a really cool lady. Totally awesome. So if you want some, you know, like real customer service in Vegas, definitely head down to the El Cortez and do that. A second thing that I think is pretty cool is based on uh, my Vegas 7 Greenfelt Journal story that will be out next week. And that's the 13th floor experience at Circus Circus, which not too many people I think know about because I certainly didn't know about it. Basically, what they've done is they've taken out one floor of the original casino tower at Circus Circus and turned it into kind of this haunted tour thing. It's not really a haunted house, haunted house, but you know they've just got people popping out of different rooms and doing stuff, and it was really kind of cool, kind of fun. Um, I can say one thing: I, when I woke up that day, I didn't think that at four thirty in the afternoon I'd be sitting in the dark in a hotel room in Circus Circus holding hands with another dude. But <laughs> that's kind of where it took me, and you know I'm cool. <laughs> You know, Dave, we don't judge. We don't yeah. judge. It, it happened. It was cool. You know, yeah. we were doing the spooky seance at the end, and, you know, it was, it was fun. And it was just a lot of fun. Um, different different part of Vegas, really cool. And you, the funnest thing, I think, is if you do the tour, you can actually book the rooms within like a week after it's over. So you can stay in the room that you were in. Huh. They saw where you saw, you know, the haunted meat locker or whatever. So just kind of a fun, quirky thing. And I'm going to, you can read more about that next Thursday. Cool. Yeah, I didn't know anything about it. So yeah. that's definitely a good one. Um, uh, Jeff, how about you? Well, I'd like to uh, um, recommend um, a, uh, a drive my um, girlfriend and I made recently and, uh, and our little, <clears throat> our little dog, Rick. Um, we made a, a really fun drive um, up the uh, California coast, and it's been it's been a few years since I've done that. And I think uh, you know we took the uh, Santa Barbara up to uh, Monterey part of the drive, and Monterey through Santa Cruz and the Bay Area and farther north is also really fun. But this time we we did the uh, um, sort of um, south central California coast and. At this time of year, just fantastic. Um, you know, it's probably not for the faint of heart drivers. Um, there are some certain, you know, there certainly are some, uh, you know, you're, you're relatively close to the, you know, cliff's edge at some places and there is a little bit of road construction going on, but it's been something I've done in probably a half dozen times in my life and, um, I just love it. And I think that, uh, you know, people who come to Las Vegas for, uh, you know, a long weekend might consider making it a week and do a uh, do uh, visit some of the great things on the uh, California coast. It's really a uh, a fun excursion. Yeah, I'm going to totally back that one up. As a Californian, I have uh, done that myself, and um, it is it's pretty amazing. If if you drive from uh, where I'm at, which is Santa Barbara, sort of what we call the Central Coast up to San Francisco, you know, you can go on the highway, which is sort of down the middle of the state, but you can also take um, the Pacific Coast Highway, which is um, not the fastest way to get there, but it's it's really amazing, the, the views and uh, just the ocean. 
and something everybody should do if they get the chance. You might not uh, you might not choose it as your normal uh, commute route to San Francisco, but it uh, it's incredibly scenic. My only complaint, Jeff, is the next time you come to my neighborhood, you have to let me buy you a beer. <laughs> we'll do that. <laughs> All right, uh, Chuck Monster. What about you? My sure bet this week is the Vegas podcast, The Palooza. This thing is going to be the greatest time you've ever had in your entire life. Tell me more. The last, the last two have been kick-ass and awesome. Not only do you get to see your three favorite podcasts, like do it live in front of you with guests and all sorts of other stuff, but you get to talk to us and and meet all these other people that you've been interacting with on all of our blogs and websites and everything. And we're going to have drinks and have a good time. And maybe I might bring my frying pan and try and cook some food on the Vidara death ray or the Harmon death ray or somewhere over there as an added bonus. But, but it's, it's, it's going to be a good time. You got to come to the Vegas podcast Palooza. All right. That's my pick. <laughs> I agree. And, and, and our group's guest is going to be a slot attendant that we find mingling in the uh, nearby area. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend something I did about a week and a half ago when I was in Las Vegas, and that was to uh, refresh my memory of all of these sort of outlying casinos, some not so outlying, but um, you know, over the course of two days, I was trying to take a bunch of photos, and so uh, one day basically ended up being me going first downtown for a few hours, taking pictures of all the stuff on Fremont Street, from you know Main Street Station to the El Cortez to uh, everything in between, and then from there. Um, down to the Boulder Strip and got to go check in at Samstown and Boulder Station and Eastside Cannery and um, Arizona Charlie's and see some of these places that I've been to, but it's been a long time since I've visited some of these places. And then I went up uh, North Las Vegas and went back to the Cannery and Santa Fe Station and Eliante and then finished up <laughs> at uh, Suncoast and Red Rock and then at the, at the very end of the day, the M Resort before I headed home. But, um, you know, it was... I think most people's Las Vegas vacations are pretty strip and maybe downtown centric, and there's a lot of other stuff to see, and you might not want to stay at Aliante Station, but it's interesting to see what they've done and how these places are put together. So if you do have the means, like AKA a car, um, it's interesting to go check out – to check this stuff out, and I would I would recommend doing it at least once to see what uh, I, I you know I had never been to Arizona Charlie's on Decatur, which I now have been to, um, and so there were a couple <laughs> a couple of holes in my uh, in my pedigree that I had to uh, that I had to rectify. So it was interesting. It was fun to see some of this stuff. And you'll have to get the black lung treatment after uh, <laughs> going to Arizona Charlie's Decatur, unless you confine yourself to their smoke free area. Yeah, you know, actually, it wasn't. It's actually, as far as a building goes, from the outside, it's visually more interesting than the Arizona Charlie's on um, on uh, Boulder Highway, which is basically a box. But anyway, and you can, and you can hit the Ross Dress for less right across the parking lot too. So yes, convenience rules. <laughs> um, all right, well, uh, that's it for today. I want to thank everybody for being here. Let, let me go around the table again so you guys can tell people where they can find you. Doctor Dave, we'll start with you. Where can people track you down? You can find me at gaming.unlv.edu or diescast.com. Mister Jeff Simpson, what about you? You can find me uh, my blog, uh, my uh, bo- my 
blog column on Hunter's blog at a two-way hard three, and uh, um, I should have a, a new column posted pretty soon. Yep, it's in the hopper. I just got to get around to publishing it, so that will be very, very soon. And uh, finally, Mr. Chuck Monster, what about you? You can find me cooking eggs outside of Vidara tomorrow at 2 p.m., all right. Look for the guy in the pirate hat. Yeah. No, no matter when you listen to this, I will always be there tomorrow at 2 p.m. I love that. All right. People can find me. Uh, they, if you want, you can find out, at Vegas, find out about Vegas Mate, my um, app for the iPhone and the iPad. The iPad version is free for the next day, and this show should be up, so you can still take advantage of that. Anyway, thanks a lot, guys. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care, you too. guys. All right. All right. Cheers. Bye.